Are you ready to live your best life, be stronger, and fall in love with yourself? It's possible, and it's inside you, but you need to unlock the power within. Welcome to Fearlessly Authentic with Jody Harrison Bauer. Jody used to be afraid to take risks. It took some stepping out of her comfort zone to get her there. Along with her guests and their stories, Jody will help you to live your best life ever. Now, here's your host, Jody Harrison Bauer. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Fearlessly Authentic. Thank you so much for joining us today. Happy New Year. It seems like Happy New Year was a long time ago, but I am so happy to have you join me. And if you are a first-time listener, this is the place to be educated, empowered, entertained a little bit, and inspired to go live your most fearlessly authentic life. So every single week, I have an amazing guest, or sometimes you get me solo, and we talk about things that have stopped you from living that fearlessly authentic life, from living in your truth, from living in your power. And today's guest has been, I think you've been on here three times already, Nina. And I love having Dr. Nina Savelle Rockland on the show to talk about um, how to get over or how to get over addictive behaviors. Specifically, Dr. Nina discusses eating disorders. So I just want to get right into welcome you to the show because we have a lot to cover. Welcome, Nina. It's so good to be here for the fourth time. I know, I know. I love having you on here because every time you're on here, I learn something new and that is the mission of the show is for people to walk away from it, learning more, sharing it with other people, and we have talked about eating disorders and I, with you because that is really what you focus on. So I want to start first with your story and what brought you into this field of study and why it's such a huge, compassionate, you know, part of your life and why, what it created for you, why you decided to go into this field and help other people overcome eating disorders and other addictions. Because as we're going to discuss, there are underlying issues to addictive behaviors. So why did you first get involved in this? It's all about the underlying issues. Okay. Mm. So um, let me just start with my very first group for women with binge eating disorder. I walk in Uh, It was like an agency. So I had not met any of the people. I walk in and there's the group and they looked me up and down. And one of them, this woman who was like a little scary, like bright red hair in her fifties, like years older than me, (laughs) really had that like attitude. And she's like, so what does a skinny bitch like you know about binge eating? (laughs) Right. Right. And there you go. Right there. Well, you know, and she, what she didn't know was I once considered myself the poster child for eating disorders because I had all of them. And what I said was, hey, you know, this skinny bitch once scarfed down an entire box of gingerbread cookies in about 15 minutes flat. And I hate gingerbread like I hate gingerbread, mm. but I couldn't stop eating those cookies. And I told the group that when I was, you know, that the, when I was five years old, I came to believe that I was too big fat. And I wasn't a perfectly normal weight kid, but that was the beginning of my obsession with my, my weight and with food. And by the time I was a teenager, you know, it's all I thought about finally went to therapy, but I went for anxiety. Mm. I talked about guys and goals and dreams and fears. I talked about everything with my therapist about everything in my life, except one thing, food. 
She had no idea I was the poster child for eating disorders because I was too embarrassed and mortified by what I was doing. And a part of me didn't want to give it up, especially when I was restricting and I felt really powerful because I couldn't, I, I could go without eating, which of course my willpower would fail and it would go down, downhill from there. But the point is when I left therapy without ever talking about food, weight, body image, any of those things, all my eating disorder behaviors were gone. Not once, not a single time had I ever talked about my eating disorders. And people say, how do you go from being the poster child for eating disorders to, to not without ever talking about food? And what I learned was food was not the problem, whether I was turning away from it or to it or to it and from it. It was the solution to the problem the real problem was, and this is you know, what I see in almost all the people I treat and what is at the core of most addictive behaviors is I was really self-critical. I was hard on myself. I was a perfectionist. Nothing I did was ever good enough. But in therapy, I started being nicer to myself. Instead of being critical, I was kind. Instead of tearing myself down, I supported myself. And by changing my relationship with myself, I changed my relationship with food. And that's the point that I'm excited to talk about because the number one issue underlying all addictive behaviors is I have found being self-critical. You can't criticize and hate yourself into loving yourself. I, I That's huge. Like, that's really a huge point. And people talk about, you know, on social media, self-love and not being critical of yourself, not necessarily using that word. And it sounds, it's something I think we throw around too easily and we don't spend the time to really love ourselves. I mean, look, I'm, I've, disliked and been very critical of myself and still am sometimes. But, you know, at this point in my life, I, I'm pretty much, I have a pretty decent relationship with myself, you know, but as we're growing and we're changing and we're figuring out love and everything else in our life, we do tend to blame ourselves first and we go to other things to help self-soothe. Am I correct in that? Exactly. What happens is, the way we talk to ourselves affects the way we feel. The way we feel affects what we do. So if you're telling yourself, like one of my patients, this is how you can locate your self-critic, easy way, by the way. One of my patients said she looked in the mirror and she said to her reflection, she said, you're disgusting. Mm. You're disgusting. So I asked her to say that again, but with an I statement, like I'm disgusting. Mm. And she couldn't do it. And she said, ooh, that's, that seems really harsh. So she could do it when she was talking to herself in second person pronoun, you, you're disgusting. But she couldn't do it when it was I, because I is more local, localized within us. She and felt so it more. She felt it more. And so if you find yourself saying things to yourself, like, you know, you're you're a failure. They don't like you. You're you always screw up. You're never going to you always some form of that. That's your inner critic talking. And once you identify it, you know, then you've got to then then you know what's there. And then you could take steps to turn that inner critic into a friend. 
And one is, hey, if you wouldn't say something to a friend, an actual friend or someone you know or care about or love, you cannot say it to yourself. So really watch the the self-talk and also the way we talk to ourselves, not not just the words we use, but the 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 tone can make a huge difference. How do you get somebody to slow down and recognize what they're doing? Or how can you help somebody who's not in therapy with you to recognize? I think the self-aware people out there are aware of the fact that maybe they're speaking with hatred towards themselves. And I love that idea of using I because you're really getting to the crux of of the issue. When you're saying I, it becomes so much more real rather than using you. And even if you suggest to that person, you know, talk to them as if they were your friend, as if it was a little child, it, it still doesn't make that much of a difference. But how do they, the first step everybody says is self-awareness, right? So when you become aware of that, how do you help somebody shift it from you to I? Well, awareness does, when I tell them that, they usually, and everyone I see is bright, accomplished, you know, aware, but you can't have a total objective um, view of your subjective situation. So if you're, if once people are aware that they're doing this, they catch themselves. But there's also a really important part to this, which is where did that voice come from? Mm. So, so, you know, just the other day I was talking to someone and, uh, you know, she, she told herself like, God, you know, she's always telling herself like, oh, you screw everything up. And I said, well, really everything We're, you screw everything up. And yet you're this successful person. Like, you screw everything up. That's quite a that's quite a statement to say. Where does that come from? Because usually it comes from something you heard. Either someone told you that. In her case, yes, she had a a, a sibling rivalry with a, a sibling who would be like, "You screw everything up," <laughs> like mm. all the time. And so this relational dynamic, which was this older sibling who said this to her became her voice to herself. So it often points to what are the underlying and unfinished, unresolved relational issues from your past that are showing up in your relationship with yourself or others. Because she, this same person also feels self-conscious in the world because she thinks she's walking around in a world where everyone is looking at her thinking, you screw everything up, you know? Wow. And so that, that, it's essential to recognize how the past is influencing your present relationship with yourself and of course with others. You know, I was thinking when you, you were talking about that, you know, growing up and I, I'm the oldest of three girls and I was told by my parents, Jody, you can do anything you want. You, you can be the star of your own show. You are a star. You are going to accomplish great things. That's what I was told as a child. So that was great because it, it gave me a lot of confidence and I didn't fear any failure. So I went after everything that I wanted and almost everything that I went after I did get because I did believe in myself. However, when I went off to college, I realized, oh, oh, <laughs> there are a lot of women out there that are better looking than me, smarter than me, 
more of everything in a good way than me. And I remember thinking to my, why did you tell me I could do all this? I can't, I can't do this and this and this. And so it was sort of a reality check kind of in the opposite way you're talking about right now. So I think it could affect us both ways in the negative, you know, my parents were doing the best job that they could, but I I've, I've heard it both ways for me. That's how it affected me. Absolutely. We, you know, my, my mentor, Dr. Salman Akhtar, with whom I wrote the book beyond or co-edited the book beyond the primal addiction in which we talk about all these different addictions, but the bottom line is it's relationship to self. That is the problem. He says there are two parents have two jobs. One is to make their babies or their children think that they are the center of the world, the center of the planet, the, the, the apple of their eye. The second job of a parent is to make that child realize they are not the center of the world. Bingo. Bingo. It's it is. So for a lot of parents listening right now, you know that it's that balance we have to find in in raising our children all the time. So in discussing the relationship with self and the underlying issue of all addictions, is that what it is? If we had to say one thing, it's the relationship with ourselves that causes addictions? Is that too strong of a word? Well, I don't love the word addictions because I think it's very negative and pejorative and it makes people feel bad. I like yeah. to say like it's a coping mechanism. All addictions are coping mechanisms. And why do we need such coping mechanisms? Why is there so such a widespread uh, you know, negative coping strategies out there in the form of addictions? Because we live in a society that said it's, says it's not okay to have feelings. Right. We're considered weak if we have them and strong if we push them away. Right. So, you know, we're told like, hey, scared, be, be strong. Don't give them to fear. If you're sad, oh, you're depressed. You you need an anti-depression, depressed. <laughs> you need a pill. <laughs> Uh, you need an antidepressant. If you're anxious, hey, there's a pill for that too. You know, if you're mad, oh, you have anger management right. issues, like you need anger management classes. So the message is there is something wrong with feelings. And of course, many of us do need medication, but I'm talking about like, like injunctions and prohibitions against our natural human emotions that connect us to ourselves and each other. So if we don't know how to feel, if we don't know how to respond to ourselves, if we think feelings means sitting in our feelings mm -hmm. and stuff like that, uh, which to me always sounds like you're sitting in a vat of like, you know, muddy water. It just sounds horrible. Who wants to right. sit? I, nobody wants to sit with their feelings. <laughs> yeah. So we don't know how to comfort ourselves. We don't know how to be with ourselves. We don't know how to respond to ourselves because we're not allowed to have feelings. And so that's why for all, all of these coping strategies that end up hurting more than they help because they're frenemies, they do something for you. you know, they do something for you, but they also hurt you. They comfort you, they distract you, they numb you, they put you in a zone, they, they do all the things. Um, and that's why we really need to learn, well, how do we feel our feelings? Because we, our society also says, oh, it's not that bad. Be grateful. It could be worse. It's, it, 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 you know, all of these things that are very dismissive. Yes. Just be positive. We weaponize gratitude. I'm all for gratitude, but not as a weapon to make you feel bad about yourself. Your, you know, the fact that you have feelings. That's a really good point. I like that because a lot of people do feel that way. 
I never thought of it that way, weaponizing that word. Yeah, it does. So many people, if I, when I would bring it up, when I would be training people and talk about that, it did. It felt like I was almost, when I would suggest gratitude, it was almost like, what do you mean? Of course I'm grateful. And it, and it also doesn't, you can't gratitude away your pain. A quick story about my daughter. She'll be mortified. She's 15 now. So everything I say mortifies right. her. Oh, 15. We're saying to ever for girls. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when she was, I think she was around six, she fell down. She, she scraped up her knee and she came to me crying like, like, and I did all the wrong things. I did all the wrong things. I did everything I tell people not to do. I said, oh, that's not so bad. Oh, you're going to be fine. Oh, it's like, at least you didn't skin both knees. I mean, I said all the wrong things Mm. and she keeps crying, but mom, it hurts. It hurts. And so finally I realized, oh my gosh, I'm doing the thing. I tell everybody not to do. So I said, actually, now that I get a closer look, that looks painful. That really looks painful. And she's like, stops crying. Yeah, it is. Now can we have a bandaid? So why do I tell that story? Because there's a direct parallel to our emotional pain. When we're in emotional pain and someone tells us, oh, it could be worse. Hey, you should be grateful for whatever. Hey, just think positive. Hey, it's going to be over soon. Like this is going to be in your rear view mirror someday. Like it's dismissive. It doesn't help us. But if someone says, oh, that hurts, that's really painful. Yeah, I get it. We feel heard. We feel understood. We feel known. We feel connected. It's powerful. So we have to do that for ourselves too. That's really interesting. Because when I was, you know, in preparing for the show and reading about addictions, you know, I've done that before, but I, I really wanted to get a feel for what it meant because thankfully I haven't had any addictions, you know, Uh, So I but I know people that have been addicted to food, addicted to alcohol, drugs and so on. And it says that it's this isn't the absolute Webster dictionary for um, addiction, but doing something we don't want to do, but can't stop doing it. That's that's like a very general definition. But in thinking about the example you just gave of your daughter, you know, I, I know that wasn't addictive behavior, but I'm just thinking, you know, people start doing things. They know that it's not right for them and they want to be heard. That point that you made about being heard. Do you think that it's really that simple that we could simplify it that much? I think that's a part of it. But there's also uh, we learn how to comfort ourselves. If people are telling us why we shouldn't feel the way we feel, how do you learn how to comfort yourself? And there's also what we know and what we don't know that's unconscious and hidden from us that affects us. For example, why at age five did I suddenly think my thighs were big when I was a skinny, normal kid? Right. Because I was always being told by my parents, you're too loud. You're too emotional. You're too sensitive. Oh, my God. Calm down. (laughs) Not you, Nina. (laughs) I know. Crazy, right? <laughs> um, they're, you know, 
ex-hippie college professors, very chill, <laughs> very, very proper and calm. I was not. And so all of this, you're too much, is how too I much. heard it. Right. In my five-year-old mind, I took this, you're too much to be, there's literally too much of me. Yeah. And that's why it's so important to look at the, the, the hidden psychological factors that go into whatever your relationship with yourself is, whether you've internalized messages you got from the past and don't even realize it or, you know, whatever. Um, but there, it's not logical. It's psychological. If it were logical, we'd be like, this, uh, this behavior does not serve me well. Therefore, right. I will not do it. Right, right. Because if it was that simple, people wouldn't be wouldn't wouldn't have such a difficult time kicking these habits that are are not serving them well, and they know it. It's costing them money and time away from loved ones, and ruining relationships. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I am just getting off over a very bad cough. So I was just like really hoping I wouldn't cough there. So, let's swing back to eating disorders. And how, with that information behind us, how do you focus and help somebody recover from an eating disorder? I know you have your book right behind you, The Binge Cure, Seven seven Ways to Seven Steps. Yes, yes. I wanted you to talk about your new book, Food for Thought, also. Well, my new book is Food Mat. I have a bunch of books, but the... Binge Cure is my um, book for mainstream readers because I wanted people to who think I specialize in all eating disorders, but mostly binge eating and bulimia, mm-hmm. because I want people to realize that there's something underlying their behavior. And what I teach them to do a lot of this is how to respond differently to themselves. So going back to how do you feel your feelings, mm. binge eating can be in in our culture, it's like, I'm sad, where's the ice cream or right. emotional eating? That's what people think of. But it could be you're lonely and it symbolically fills a void. It could be you're angry and you uh, can't be mad at the person you're mad at or the situation. So you just displace that and get mad at yourself for eating. It could be converting emotional pain to physical pain by eating so much you're in physical pain. pain right. And all of this is out of awareness, but not out of operation. So it's like taking the, what's hidden and making it you know, visible so then you can challenge it and fight it. One of the things I help people do is identify their emotions because again, we're taught not to have them. So half the time we don't know what we're feeling. We just feel bad or weird or uncomfortable, but we don't know really what that is. You're and right, then the feeling, the feeling bad part is like a huge huge emotion that you hear people talking about, the feeling bad. And then, as you said, they don't know where to take those feelings. So instead of putting it into something, let's just say good, but even something good can turn into an addictive behavior. You know, if you want to start working out or walking, then you're walking a lot, right? Exactly, exactly. Like work addiction is sort of a virtue and a vice. Right. Um, But- So with all of them, people need to learn how to identify what they're feeling because bad can be angry. It can mean sad. It can be scared. It can mean all kinds of things. So identify what do you mean? What's actually going on with you? And then 
how to express your feelings. And this is where people usually go, like they identify it and they think they've expressed it. So, mm. oh, I was angry. Why am I still angry? Because you didn't, you, you didn't process your anger, like you identified it. Or they'll say, well, I realized I was very angry. I'll be like, really, you, you, were, you were very angry? Like, I, like, no, you were very angry. Like, you've got to express it. Like, feelings need to be felt in our bodies. So first you identify it, then you express it. I'm really frustrated because of this. I'm irritated because of that. I'm annoyed at that. I'm hurt because of this. Like, you have to actually say what it is that is bothering you in words. To, that's, a huge, that's a huge step. Huge step. And it's very hard for most people. And then the next step is I created a, an acronym because I love acronyms um, called VARY. And it's like to vary your response to yourself other than turning to food. Mm-hmm. Vary your response, which stands for validate, acknowledge and reassure yourself. And so then so first you identify it, then you express it and then you validate it. So if I were to say to my daughter at age six, I would have said, yeah, of course you of course you're crying. Your your knee hurts that feel your you you fell your your scraped your knee. It really hurts. Of course, you're sad. Of course, you're crying. Right. Validate and acknowledge. Right. And then I'd say, and this is going to, you know, you've gone through scrapes before. You're going to feel better. You know that we're going to get you patched up. Now you're going to feel good as new really soon. If you, you can even do the, hey, it's going to be okay. As long as you first say, Ugh, it's terrible now. You yeah. know, I, I learned that the hard way and in helping clients and and watching my children grow, understanding that the response that you first expressed that you had when your daughter fell versus how you recognized that and changed it and then got a different response from her. How long does it take for you when you're working with somebody to actually acknowledge and then express And then the validation part, how long, I'm sure it varies with each person, but how, if somebody's really working with you, how long could it take to change the way they, they feel about themselves and express themselves? Well, it's interesting because as a psychoanalyst, I'm trained like, Hey, you see people four times a week for a few years or whatever. Right. right. I don't think that works really well in the 21st century for a lot of people. There are some people who want to do that more classical analysis, but not Freudian, not like mm-hmm. tell me about your mother, but more like right. you know, like a deep, like a really deep dive into your your soul. Which is why I I have uh, programs that are 12 weeks or a new one with eight weeks. So I'm not saying that your eating disorder is going to be gone in in 12 weeks, but boy, what I've seen is people actually do transform their relationship with themselves in that time, or at least make significant progress towards doing so. And then they just need, they just then have the tools to know what to do. And they've worked through how they learned this way of being with themselves. Cause you can't change it unless you know where it comes from. That's, that's the hardest part is that deep dive of really recognizing where it came from. Do you feel that this program that you've created, can it be applied to other quote unquote addictions? 
or is it specifically for very specific for people who are struggling with emotional eating or binge eating? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I suppose it could be, but mm-hmm. it, it involves things that are so specific to that, that um, the, the core principles could be, but it would just you know, have to be redone. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And by the way, one of the ways that I fundamentally disagree with 12 step programs and things like that is they tell you you're powerless over the thing and that the thing is the problem as opposed to there's a reason you're doing the thing that you don't want to do. And you are not like you are not what you're doing. So you are a if you're if someone is struggling with binge eating, they are not a binge eater. They're a person who's struggling with binge eating for a reason. I love that. And when you can look at it that way, instead of making it your identity, which mm-hmm. is shame ridden, right? And thinking there's something wrong with you. And then, so, and so many people don't want to talk about this because of the shame, which is why I'm just glad we're talking about it today. Because, and that is why we wanted to discuss the underlying problem here, because people don't feel that they can express their feelings, and that. I think is that's a huge part of it. That's a huge part of the steps to recovery, wouldn't you say? Yeah. And furthermore, I I don't believe in recovery. I believe in liberation. Like mm. recovery is like you're just getting over a really bad cold or the flu or something like you're recovering from the flu. We recover from the flu or from whatever, a bad breakup or whatever. But we're, when you talk about recovering in, in eating disorders, I feel like you're just in recovery. Like it's something you always have to be dealing with. And I don't like that. That doesn't sound compelling to me. And it's not the truth. It's liberation, which means it's something you used to do. Like we don't say, oh, I'm in recovery from anxiety. We say used to be anxious and now I'm not. Same thing. I used to do that behavior. And then I learned why I was doing it and got new coping strategies and changed my relationship with myself, made peace with myself. And now I don't do it anymore. Liberation. Yay. I love that. I love that you have this whole new outlook on it. I think that's so important. And I think that gives people a lot of hope because so many people do feel like, oh, I'm going to go here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Then I'll be in recovery. And then it's like sort of a stuck place. I'm in recovery, right? Rather than feeling liberated from something that was holding them back from living their most fearlessly authentic life. Exactly. If you're doing something you don't want to do, or you're not doing something you want to do, there is a reason. And that reason may be out of your awareness. It may, it's hidden. It's unconscious, but it's there. And I like to call myself the detective of, a, of the mind. So when you are detective and you get really curious, not critical, about mm-hmm. why that is, and you discover the answers, then you can create change. And detectives don't say, oh, that clue is really embarrassing and weird and stupid detectives just say like hmm there's a clue and you have to have the same attitude towards yourself like really be curious what's going on with me what is this behavior resolving what is it keeping me from thinking about what is it keeping me from doing what am I afraid of I love I yeah no that's this is all great great information on somebody who is listening, or they might know somebody who's 
struggling with those same things. So the book is called The Binge Cure. This is what you said is like your opening book for people who feel that maybe they have have to they need to read this or share it with a friend. Yeah. If if anyone who has an unhealthy, unhappy relationship with food, whether it's full on binge eating disorder or some binging, emotional eating, anytime that you are using food to resolve something emotional to make yourself feel better then and it, and it is a problem and you know it is a problem, then you need to read this book because there is another way. I've read the book. It's a great book. I've shared this book with, I've, I've purchased it and have given it to people that I feel that need it and they have passed it on to other people. So this is a great book. I also want to talk about your newest book that you mentioned um, that you're working on right now, right? Well, I did. So I, I, I write scholar, like kind of academic scholarly books. And then I also write mainstream books. So okay. the next one is called Food Matters, and it's a biopsychosocial exploration of food. You can guess wow. which category this is in. But I also am coming out with a binge cure journal, which is a companion. That, yeah. So it's it's full of it's it's a guided journal full of prompts that help you identify these, these hidden reasons or what's going on in your past or in your present or figure out how to uh, live differently in the now. Um, these are all, they, they, they go hand in hand with the book and they really help you change your relationship with yourself through journaling. When is that coming out? I think it's coming out April or May. Okay, wonderful. And how can people reach you in order to get more information from you or refer somebody to you? I don't know if you're seeing more clients, uh, patients, but, you know, if they need your help. Yeah. Well, I do. I do have uh, online programs and I see people from all over the world. Okay, great. So um, uh, they can go to my website, which is Dr. Nina Inc., D-R-N-I-N-A-I-N-C. Or uh, they can find me on Instagram. I have two Instagram handles, Dr. Nina Psychoanalyst or The Binge Cure, um, the, com, the period, binge, period, cure, and doctor, period, Nina, period, psychoanalyst. And they can find me there. I do personally answer all my emails and all my DMs. So feel free to reach out. Nina, thank you so, so much for being on the show. I know you helped so many people. I've helped so many people with your book. So thank you so much for being on the show again. And I hope to have you back very, very soon without any technical difficulties. Thank you for having me. And anytime, I would love to. Love you. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in this week to Fearlessly Authentic. Please listen again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition with your host, Jody Harrison Bauer, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and unlock the keys to a more powerful you.